Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of Ruth. If you don't have a Bible, um, we have a whole mess of them back at the welcome table. Head on back there. We will give one to you for free. That is our free gift to you. Uh, we love the Word of God here. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word. And we, uh, just as a church, study entire books of the Bible together so that we might know the full counsel of God, know His Word more fully, and hopefully by His grace, know Him better and walk with Him in more joy. So um, over the course of the next six weeks, uh, we're going to be looking at this awesome little Old Testament book uh, on the story of this Moabite woman named Ruth. Uh, which is funny because actually she's not even technically, in my opinion, the main character of the book of Ruth. Actually, the focus is more on Naomi, uh, very early on at least, and then kind of shifts to Ruth. Uh, but she's definitely um, the, the character that the author of this book wants us to see and understand uh, her story. And this story can be a tough one to read, because it introduces themes of pain, loss, deep suffering, and it, it confronts us as the readers to think through the reality of, of this. Where is God in the midst of loss, pain, and suffering? And the, and the main two characters, Ruth and Naomi, are going to lose everything. And, and their story is a story of how God met them in the midst of that loss and how they both embraced that suffering, sometimes well and sometimes not well, but how they embraced that suffering in the midst of that loss and also, how God redeems them in that plight. But it's also going to be a story of how God uses suffering to bring about beauty and redemption in the life of Naomi, in the life of Ruth, in the life of Israel, but also for us. There's so much in this story, wrapped up in this narrative, that God wants us to see about who we are, but more importantly, about who he is in light of the realities that we face in the world around us. So I'm going to make an obvious statement, and it's going to seem obvious, but I want you to pause and think about it for a second, because I would submit to you that this statement is both obvious, but most, most of us throughout our lives do as much as humanly possible to either ignore the reality of it or avoid it. So here's the statement. Life is hard, and with that hardship comes suffering and loss. Think, chew on that for a second. I doubt anyone in this room would disagree with me. Right? Life is difficult. It's wrought and filled with difficulties. Suffering and loss are all things we experience. Even just last night, my wife and I put our oldest son to bed, and 40 minutes later, he comes out crying uncontrollably. I mean, he was hyperventilating. 
and you know, I'm the emotional, um, I have the emotional intelligence of a two-year-old. So it took me 10 minutes to gather my bearings before I went to calm him down and talk with him. Jackie did all the hard work and then I just got to pick up the pieces. But I, I walk over, I'm like, Gideon, what's going on, buddy? Like, what's wrong? He's like, you know, I, I'm just thinking about, you know, suffering and, and people dying and how hard that would be. And I'm like, dude, you're nine. You're not supposed to be thinking about these things yet. But even my nine-year-old son right, realizes that this is just a fact and reality of life. That everyone in this room has faced this already at some point. You've faced some type of hardship or loss, loss of a loved one, loss of an opportunity or a thing hoped for, loss of a relationship or a friendship. Life is wrought with high highs, but it can also be full of some really low lows. And sometimes those lows are self-inflicted. They are. Sometimes we are made to sit in our own mess that we have created. Sometimes they're just not. That life is hard just because of the reality of the brokenness of the world around us. The famous Canadian psychologist and author Jordan Peterson, when he talks about suffering and the difficulty of life, he puts it this way. He says, what do you do about that? And he's referring to suffering and hardship. He asks the question to his class. He says, well, what do you do about that? And he asks the question rhetorically because he says this, well, you accept it. Says that's what life is like. It is suffering. That's what the religious people have always said. Life is suffering. And so here you have this non-religious, agnostic Canadian psychologist who still glances out at the world around him and says, life is suffering. Life is hard. And you can either embrace that reality or that fact, or you could sit around and complain about it and try to avoid it. You know, my grandfather used to have this famous saying, he'd always say it to me. And I've, you, those of you guys that have been around a, a, a while, you know that I just like to repeat random things my grandfather said to me over the years. But one of you would always say, he'd say, boo, that was his nickname for me. I'd say, boo, two things are true in life, death and taxes. I don't think my grandfather had it totally correct because one, there's a lot of true things in life. But I would submit that maybe the third thing he could have added to that quote would have been suffering and difficulty is something we will all face in this life. And so what we're brought with then, the place that we're brought to, if we'll, if we'll stand up and realize the reality of what stands before us, that life is just wrought with trial and difficulty. Yes, it's wrought with high, hoes, high, high highs and hope, but it's also very much so filled with the reality of deep suffering and loss oftentimes. And so the question we can ask ourselves is, what do we do with that then? Maybe a better question, where do we go when life seems unbearable and hopeless? What do we do? How do we face that? Because the world will give you a whole slew of psychology, of opportunities, of plans, 
of 12-step programs or whatever it may be. The world will throw them at you. But I would submit to you that the only true way forward is understanding who you are and who your God is. And where is that God in the midst of pain and loss and suffering? And the book of Ruth will be a roadmap of sorts for us over the next six weeks as we study it together into answering some of those questions. What do we do with pain? What do we do with suffering? Is there a right or wrong way to face the mountain that stands before us? And where is God in all of this? And the biggest question that this little book will answer for us is this. Is God present and sovereign in the midst of a fallen and broken world? And that answer will be a resounding yes. That nothing takes God by surprise or is outside of his control. So let's look at these first 18 verses together this morning as we see where God is present in the midst of this incredible suffering that Naomi is going to be staring down. Starting in verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled, There was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpha, and the other, the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So, so the first five verses give us all of the backdrop to the entire story that we're going to read over the next six weeks. And and the story, what we maybe need to understand is take another step back and just understand maybe where the story of Ruth and Naomi take place in the timeline of Israelite history. And so if you know anything about the Old Testament, the, the, the book of Ruth takes place in the days of the judges. And so this is post-Joshua, and we just got done studying the book of Joshua together. This is post-Joshua. Israel has entered the Holy Land. God has given it to them, but it is pre-Saul, pre-days of the king. And what was going on during the time of the judges was basically um, chaotic. Israel would go back and forth, and they would they would uh, vacillate between these alternating kind of time periods where they would be really, really faithful to God, and then they would enter another time period where they would be really, really unfaithful to God, and God would punish them. And Israel was not a shining example of obedience and faithfulness and love to their God 
uh, and following his commandments as outlined in the Mosaic Covenant during this period of their history. As a matter of fact, if you'll turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 28, I want to read for you just the reality that was staring down Israel in this season and period of their life. When you get to Deuteronomy chapter 28, these are kind of the last words of Moses to Israel before he passes away and Joshua leads them into the Holy Land. And God through Moses is gonna give this charge to Israel about what will happen to them if they are faithful to him and what will happen to them if they are unfaithful to him. So look at starting in verse one. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall you be shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. So he makes it really clear. He's like, look, if you guys are faithful to God, if you listen to him, if you honor him, it's gonna go well for you. Now, pop over to verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I commanded you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. Pretty clear, right? <laughs> right? It's like, hey, if you're faithful and you're obedient, it's gonna go well for you. If you're unfaithful and you're disobedient, you're going to be cursed. So the, the book of Judges is kind of this back and forth between when Israel is faithful, it goes well for them, and when they're unfaithful, it does not go well for them. And you can compare this for those of you guys that have been with us all summer as we've been studying the book of Joshua, you can see how quickly they get away from this um, fervor to faithfulness to God as they enter into the Holy Land. As a matter of fact, when I preached two weeks ago, there was such a commitment to faithfulness and honoring God that they nearly went to civil war just a few weeks after they finished conquering the Holy Land because of how committed they were to being obedient to God. And by the time you get to the time of the judges, they've begun to fall away from following after the promises of God. Just a generation or two is all it takes. And so when we get to the book of Ruth, what we see is there is a famine in Israel and it is a consequence of their disobedience. And so the author introduces us to this guy named Elimelech and his name literally means in Hebrew, my God is king. So this guy's name, right, declares Yahweh, our creator, is my king. He is sovereign and Lord over my life and the lives of everyone else. He's the husband to Naomi. He's the father to Malan and Killian. And he's facing this famine. And as he stands down this famine 
and his name means my God is king, he says, I do not trust God to be sovereign and sufficient through this famine. And I'm going to run off to Moab where I've heard that there's some food. I'm going to leave Judah and I'm going to head straight to Moab. Now, some of you guys may be sitting there this morning and you're like, well, why is that a big deal? Right, why does that matter? Well, one, right, God's people were told to trust him and to place their trust in him even when their unfaithfulness had produced the fruit of being cursed. But more so than that, Moab was actually not great for Israel. Uh, back in Genesis chapter 19 is one of the first times we hear about Moab and how uh, the Moabites come about. Moab was born out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. Not great. Then, when you get to Numbers chapter 25, we've read these verses the last three weeks now, so I'm not going to read them to you again. But in Numbers 25, the men of Israel begin to intermarry and mix with Moabite women, and that leads them then to begin worshiping false gods like the Baals or Chemosh, who was the god of Moab. And so this is where uh, two weeks ago I told you about this guy named Phineas who was the one that actually stabbed and killed people inside the holy place in the tabernacle to rid Israel of the um, just faithlessness and turning away from God that was going on inside the nation of Israel at the time. And so here you have Moab was born out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. You have the people of Israel being led astray time and time again by the Moabites. And then if you turn back to uh, Judges chapter 3, even in this very time period that Ruth and Elimelech and Naomi live, this is what was true of Moab's relationship to Israel, starting in verse 12 of Judges chapter 3. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon and the king of Moab for 18 years. That is a consistent theme throughout the book of Judges, and the Moabites were one of the people groups that God would use to oppress Israel and punish them for their rebellion and their disobedience. And so what we see going back then to our story in Ruth, is here we have this guy, Elimelech. His name is my God as king. And yet as he stares down suffering and famine, he decides to trust in himself over trusting in God. He's turned away from God. And instead of turning to God in repentance, he's doubled down and fled to Moab to make his own way. Now, it would be easy for us to sit here this morning, read this story, read about Elimelech, and judge him. What is he thinking? Right? He had, he had the judges, and he had the law, and the prophets, 
And he had heard of God's faithfulness to Israel. How, how dare he turn and trust in himself over the God that had given them the promised land of Judah that now he resided in? But are we really that different? I mean, if we sit here this morning, we really think about it. We see clear commands and promises to God. Any of you guys that have grown up in the church or you've read God's word, you know what obedience to God is to look like. How often do we sit and look at what God commands to be true and good for us? And yet we are so enamored by our own need for control and to avoid suffering that we flee his presence and try to take care of things ourselves. It's probably all of us. Or whether you would call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ in this room this morning or not, one thing that I have found to be true of human beings consistently over my life is that we love to have control over our own lives. And we are slow to surrender that control to God. This has been true for me a number of times. Some of you guys have heard me tell this story before, but about five years ago, um, maybe even six years ago now at this point, um, my wife and I um, had just had our second son, Josiah, and he started uh, showing seizures literally the day we brought him home from the hospital. And um, those first three months of his life, I would say of those probably 90 days, at least 60 of them he spent in the hospital, hooked up to machines and poked and prodded. And um, he was given so many different types of medication, every type of test you could possibly imagine. And during that same time, the church was, gosh, probably only about a year old at that point, maybe, maybe closer to two years old at that point. And um, we were young. We didn't know what we were doing. It was just me as far as pastoral staff and leadership at the church. And here we are. My wife is spending, you know, 80% of her time living in a hospital room. We've got a three-year-old at home. We don't have any family living close by. And all I can keep thinking to myself is I got to be this great husband. I've got to be this great father to a three-year-old at home and, and make sure he doesn't feel neglected and left out. But I also need to be at the hospital to be there for my wife and my youngest son. But I'm also a pastor of this new church and I have all these different things going on. And I had just resolved in the midst of all of this pain and all of this suffering to just, I'm going to buckle down. I can do this, right? I can, I can be all of these different things. And some of you guys have heard this. I, I just reached a breaking point. I, my adrenal glands were probably shot. There was no dealing of any of the emotions or the reality of what I was walking through or my wife was walking through during that season for me personally. And I was at my office over off of 13th Street. There's just this little dinky building. It was practically a closet that I had for an office. And I got a call from Jackie as I was sermon prepping that week. Hey, Josiah just had another seizure. We're on our way to the hospital. So I closed my Bible. I got in my car, got out to my car, got in the car, and there's this little stop sign at the end of this little alley where my office was. And I hit that stop sign, and I just stopped, and I put the car in park. 
And I just started screaming at God. How dare you do this to me? How dare you put me through this after I've given up so much for you? And all I wanted to do at that point, if I'm honest, was turn my phone off, change my identity, move out west and not have to deal with anything. Because it was what stood in front of me seemed impossible to move through. And I've heard the word of the Lord come to me a number of times in my life. And I know some of, I don't want to get too charismatic up here at the front, but I've felt the Lord speak to me audibly a few times. And for those of you guys that are searching for that experience all the time, I'd encourage you not to, because every time it's happened to me, it's been in moments of severe disobedience. But as I sat there at that stop sign, I just felt the Lord say to me, are you ready to let me take control now? Are you ready to stop trying to manipulate and control everything? You aren't in control. Stop thinking that you are. I just wept. I just wept. I, I don't know how long I sat there. I hope no one was behind me because they weren't going anywhere. And I drove home and I just gave it all to the Lord. God, I can't do anything. I'm just going to do the best that I can, but I'm going to trust you in the midst of all this. But that came not days, not hours after the suffering had started. I'm talking months. I fought against what was going on. When faced with suffering, will we turn to God or will we flee to comfort and control and power? Because Elimelech flees, but as we're going to see, his sin of fleeing doesn't just affect him, it affects everyone around him. Because Elimelech, when he flees to Moab, he dies, and Naomi's left without a husband. And in those days, not having a husband was a really, really big deal. Right? Some of you ladies in here, if you're married this morning, if your husband were to pass away, it would be horrible. Right? But we're at a place now, maybe in society, where we might be able to figure that out and navigate that with the help of others. We may be able to figure that out. Right? You probably have a job or a career, most of you. You'd be able to move forward no matter how difficult that could be. But in these days, that's not how it worked. And so Naomi's standing there, but at least she's got two sons that can help provide. And those two sons, while they're there, they, they marry uh, Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, and they're there for 10 years. And by the way, God was not okay with Israelite men marrying outside of Israel, but they do it anyway. Their dad has set the precedent for them to be disobedient and stiff-necked towards God. And then the sons die. And here you have Naomi at this point. She's left with no more options. She has no husband, she has no sons, she has no way to provide for herself. She is a foreigner in a hostile land. What is she to do? Has life ever brought you to this point? The way that I was right there off of 13th Street, it's like, I've got nothing left. 
can't do anything else? Has life ever brought you where the hurt and the pain and the suffering, they're so deep. And as you fought and clawed against that suffering, you were eventually left with what appeared to be no options. And what we see is Naomi is left with one. She can return to Israel. She can return to God and she can throw herself on the mercy of her creator. And she's going to do that. Now I'm going to ruin the entire book of Ruth for us right now. God is merciful and he redeems her. She has nothing left. So she throws herself on the mercy of God. If you are here this morning, if you hear nothing else from my sermon this morning, will you hear this? If you are running from God this morning, fleeing his presence, fleeing fleeing his sovereignty over your life, the same God that allows Naomi to throw herself at his mercy and meets her and redeems her in that will do the same for you. And some of you guys are like, how do you know, pastor? How do you know that God will do that for me? I read it in his word, and I've been a follower of Jesus long enough now to have seen him do this in the lives of hundreds of other people, including myself. I'm not guessing anymore. Right? One of the things I, you know, some of you guys know this about me. I love apologetics, and, you know, sometimes if you've been my friend long enough, I'll even create a debate with you about something I don't even believe in just because I enjoy a good, lively discussion. My wife will come into the room. There have been literally times in our gospel community over the years where we'll be over praying for a couple hours after group's over, and Jackie will come in, and I'm debating some college guy from our church, and Jackie will just be like, he doesn't believe this. Will you just leave my house, please? We want to go to bed. I've seen God meet people where no amount of apologetics or philosophy can shake what I've seen God do in people's lives. Not guessing anymore. And that same God that allows Naomi to throw herself at his mercy is inviting you to do the same thing. No matter what you have done, The creator of the universe has a vision for your life. And and I'm here to tell you, it's better than your vision for your life. I love you guys. A lot of you guys are UF students. I meet you and I'm like, oh my gosh, you're so much more motivated than I was at 18. I had no clue. I had no clue what I wanted to do with my life. Some of you guys are like, yeah, I'm going to cure cancer and go live on the moon and solve world hunger all by 35. Awesome. God's vision is better than yours. His plan is better than yours. If you will throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus, I promise you, He is there and He will be merciful to you to walk with you all the days of your life. And so, what we're going to see is Naomi resolves. Because she's left with no other options. She resolves to return to Judah and throw herself on God's mercy and his people. And look at what happens starting in verse 6. 
Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So, Naomi resolves to return to Judah and to her people. She, and she's going back, guys, a beggar and a failure. She's going back to Israel with nothing to offer. But she tells her daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each of you in the house of her husband. She loves these two women. Like, go back, restart your lives, be done with me. Imagine losing everything and still loving the two family members you have left in your life enough to still say to them, I'm not a good person to be around right now. Go, leave. And initially, Ruth and Orpah, they're going to respond, no. Like, no, we want to go with you. Right, look at verse 11 and 14, through 14. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night, and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. I see, see Naomi's response to them. They're like, no, we want to go with you, Mom. We want to go with you. And her response is, no, I don't have sons. I'm too old to bear more. And even if I could, would you wait for them to be fully grown so you could remarry them? Don't do that to yourselves. She says to them, God has given me sorrow. Don't exacerbate my sorrow by ruining what's left of your life as well. And notice who she blames all of this on. She doesn't blame her husband, Elimelech, who brought them there and then died, who does she blame? God. She's like, God is the author of my sorrow. He's done all of this to me, right? This, this, by the way, guys, should give us great hope. Naomi is furious with her God, views him as the author of her sorrow, and yet is going to return to Israel and throw herself at that same God's mercy. God can handle your poor attitude. He can handle it, right? I've been a part of of ministries where if someone's in the midst of suffering and someone else is complaining about it, like, you need to stop complaining about it and have more faith in God. Well, I mean, okay, thanks, Professor Legalist. I'll be sure to watch you the next time you're dealing with the loss of a loved one so that I can learn from your high holiness on how to do it perfectly. 
God does not demand some level of perfection from you in the midst of suffering and hurt and pain. All he asks is that you come to him. And Naomi cries out to her daughters, God. God has put so much pain and suffering on me. Please do not exacerbate that by coming with me back to Judah. And think through this practically, by the way. This makes a ton of sense. Naomi and her family have left Israel for Moab. Does not look good to the people she's about to return to. Yeah, we left you guys when things were hard, but we're back. Then, all the males have died leaving her widowed. This would have been viewed as God's punishment to her by Israelites. Bad. She's going to return to Israel as a beggar and widowed. Bad. And then, if she brings Orpah and Ruth with her, not only is she returning to Israel as a beggar, but she's bringing two foreign mouths to feed. Not great. Naomi's shame is so high, she's trying to avoid any more. And this is not uncommon for us as human beings. We find ourselves in suffering and sorrow and shame, and we do anything we can to at least mitigate that shame. I remember when I was in high school, uh, a family I knew, their daughter got pregnant. I remember she gained some weight and she started wearing um, like hoodies and sweatpants and things like that. And we kind of like, this was out of the ordinary for her, but no one really knew what was going on. And then she got sick and disappeared for a few months. And then she got better, at least is what we were told. She got better, returned to school. And during that sickness, her parents had magically adopted a little brother. Most people didn't have any idea what was going on, right? They were doing anything they could, though, to hide the shame of what had happened to their family. And we try to do these types of things all the time, but we cannot hide the facts that something has happened. And Naomi's not going to be able to hide that either. But as Naomi cries out to her two daughters, she tells them, guys, following me is a path to emptiness and sadness. There is no food, no future family, no people. There is no hope in following me. And Orpah sees that. She relents. Says, okay, I'm going to return. I'm going to return to my parents. Hope, hope, hope that something else happens. But this is where the story starts to turn. Ruth is going to respond in a brilliant moment of faith to cling to Naomi and trust in her creator and in Naomi's God. And look at starting in verse 15 with me. She said, see, this is Naomi, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. 
And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Right? Ruth chooses to stay with Naomi, not because it's the right thing to do or the best decision. Guys, if you think through this rationally, Ruth makes a terrible life decision here. She's heading to a foreign land with no one to care or take for her and no promise of being provided for. But she says, your people will be my people. Where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. And your God will be my God. And what love she has for Naomi, first of all. Right, the word that's used there in, in verse 14, it says, but Ruth clung to her. That word clung is the same ver, uh, word in Hebrew used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 to describe what happens to a husband and wife as they cling to one another in marriage. They actually cleave to one another. And what Ruth is doing here is she's making a covenant before Naomi and before God that she will stay and pledge herself to them. She is choosing by faith to trust in Naomi's God and in his promises. And as I sit here and I read the story, I'm like, what would cause Ruth to do such a thing? Right? Maybe it was the love for Naomi. Maybe it was necessity. She only saw it as her only way forward. Maybe it was out of a deep concern for Naomi. I'm not sure. The text doesn't lead us into what Ruth was thinking in that moment. But one thing I do know is that God is sovereignly calling Ruth to him. He's going to save her. He's going to save this Moabite widow because he is good. Because he loves her. Because he has chosen her. And he's going to use her suffering and Naomi's suffering to save her and to alter her eternity, but also through her line to save Israel and every single one of us sitting in this room this morning. That is how strong the sovereignty of God is, even in the smallest story of suffering, that God would redeem an entire people, including Ruth, through suffering. See, Ruth is a story about redemption. And it's not Ruth's redemption. It's God's redemption of Ruth and his people. I said earlier that Ruth is a story about suffering and pain. But it's really a story of how God redeems our suffering and pain. In the coming weeks, what we're going to see as we study this book together is we're going to see God provide for Ruth. He's going to redeem Ruth, and he's going to use Ruth's line to redeem the whole world. And in his sovereignty, he's going to use the pain of a lost father-in-law, of leaving everything and returning to a land for Naomi and to a land that Ruth has never even been to, to rescue and redeem Ruth, Israel, and us because that is what God does. He redeems our mess. And so I want to leave us with this this morning. Are you suffering? And I think all of us, if we sat for a minute and thought through that question, could think of something not going well in life right now. I mean, we just came out of 2020, guys. Right, 2020 was hard. 
Maybe life is not going how you had planned. Maybe there's family drama, political drama. Maybe you've gotten a medical diagnosis that you weren't expecting. Whatever your suffering and plight in life is right now, God is ready to meet you there. And as you surrender to him to redeem you and meet you with his grace and his mercy and his love. And this is not me trying to share some prosperity theology to you where if the last 24 months have been hard for you financially, that if you'll just surrender to God, there's going to be a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. It's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about something with far greater implications than just how life is going for you right now, economically, physically, relationally. We're talking about who are you in light of who the God of the universe is and how that intersects between your plight and life, your suffering and God's sovereignty. John Piper, one of my favorite pastors, wrote a book, and this was the second book I ever read as a new Christian. He wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Life. And he talked about how in that book, that living for God means not wasting anything that you experience in life, good or bad. This means that everything you do, especially if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, Everything you do has cosmic implications. That everything you do displays the glory of God and everything you walk through is meant to display the glory of your creator and God. Everything. He used to even have this line that he would drop when he had cancer that he would say regularly, don't waste your cancer. Use it for God's glory. God is out to use it to meet somebody else and to sovereignly draw someone to him. That God uses our blessing, but he also, and far more regularly, by the way, uses our suffering to communicate his glory and grandeur to the world around us. This is the same thing that James says in James chapter one as he writes to the church. He says this, count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See what James is saying there. He says, count it all joy, right? And you may be sitting there just like me thinking, how in the world? Could I find myself in a situation similar to Naomi and be told to count it joy? But look at what he says. He said, if, if you are walking through trials and you steadfastly walk with God and love him and throw yourselves at his feet and at his mercy, you will see him come through and that will produce in you a steadfastness that will prove to you that you are in Christ. 
Remember when I said earlier that no amount of apologetics could shake me? It's because over time, God has been gracious enough to me. Not through blessing, although he certainly has, but in suffering to be faithful to me and to others where I have seen that faithful, that faithfulness and that faithfulness has provided a steadfastness of trust in Christ. Guys, some of you in this room are the testimony of that steadfastness to me. God has used you and he has used your suffering to produce in me a greater faith and trust in God. God wants to use you. And if you are here this morning and suffering greatly, don't run like a Elimelech. Don't. But instead, run to God. God wants to use your trial, your suffering, to display his sufficiency to you. Charles Spurgeon has this famous line. He says, there is no university for a Christian like that of sorrow and trial. And what he's saying there is you will learn the most about God and his goodness and his mercy when you are most needy and dependent upon him. That's how it works. It's where we see the true steadfastness of God. And guys, look, I get that this is hard. This is not me coming up front here and talking about the reality of what Ruth and Naomi were facing and saying, be like me, we can do this. It's easy. There's nothing about what Ruth and Naomi walked through that was easy. There's nothing about the great faith that, that Ruth exercises here that was easy. It was right and it was good and it was what she needed. And you may be sitting there thinking, Kevin, you don't understand. You just don't understand. I have it worse than Ruth and Naomi. Somehow it is even worse than what they were walking through. And it may be. It certainly may be. Here's what I can tell you. If anyone can relate and meet you in that pit of despair, it is God. And here's how I know this. God suffered by surrendering his only son. And that son surrendered himself to punishment, brutality, and the withdrawing of fellowship from the father when he wanted it the most for your sin and rebellion and for mine. The son suffered at the hands of wicked men and women for our rebellion so that his mercy might await us if we turn to him. He gives mercy to us that we may see him. And guys, that story I shared earlier about Josiah Right now, I sat at that stop, light, that stop sign. Here's what I'll just say about that. As I surrendered to God there at that, at that intersection, I still had all sorts of hopes of what that mercy was going to look like. 
Because most of the time when we throw ourselves at God's feet and his mercy, we still try to dictate to him the parameters of what that's supposed to look like. And here's what I wanted. I wanted a fully healed child with no more medical issues. I wanted a drama-free church. Good luck, by the way. I pastor it. It's going to have some drama in it. It's like, like I create it sometimes. I wanted to not have to think about money or where our next meal was coming from. I wanted my wife and I to be super harmonious and for her to practically worship the ground I walk on because of how great a husband I am. It's not like that, by the way. I wanted all these things. That's, that's how I wanted God to redeem my suffering and pain. Jackie, did anything turn out exactly like that? Not a single one of those things. As I threw myself at God's mercy, did it turn out that way? But he met me. And he, and he taught me something far better. He taught me, Kevin, you're not God. And your will and your vision for your life is just not good enough. And your desire for how things are supposed to look and how they're supposed to be are not good enough. And I'm going to teach you that life can go forward in the midst of suffering. And that I'm going to be with your son even though he still is going to have epilepsy. And that you're going to be okay. And your family's going to be okay. And you're going to see the people of God come around you and your family in this season. And you're going to learn that the church is the church. That they're a family, even if family is not here. They're going to love you. They're going to watch your kid. They're going to bring meals to you in the hospital. They're going to weep and cry over your son and pray for your kid. There's going to be people in countries all over the world on their hands and knees pleading for your child. You're going to experience a love that you have never experienced before from complete and total strangers. You're going to have people you've never met call the hospital and pay for the countless amount of hospital bills that have grown over time and you cannot afford them. And in that, you're going to learn that I'm in control and following me is the better way. Keep hoping in me, not in yourself or the world. Church, Jesus is so much better than our suffering. And he is so much better than the release from that suffering than the world is promising you. The things we use to cope with the trials of this world, the things we use to escape our suffering and our difficulty, they're nothing in light of Jesus. Take your suffering, take your sorrow, take your sin, hand it over to him. And I promise you, do you surrender that control? A sovereign God is waiting to meet you there, to redeem you as he does, Ruth. Here's what I'm going to ask us to do this morning. We're going to turn the lights down. I'm going to invite the band back up. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to take communion. 
We take communion here every week as an opportunity to remember the sovereignty of God and giving up his only son for our sin and rebellion towards him. And we take communion as an act of worship. We take the wafer, we take the juice in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. I'm going to invite the people that I talked to before the service to just come up front. There'll be a few in the back. If you are struggling with sin, if you are suffering right now, if life just seems overwhelming and unbearable, will you go pray with somebody? We've got elders and we've got other key leaders and people in this church that want to love and pray for you and to pray that God would meet you and to, and to help you take the next steps to surrender that control and to trust in Jesus. And then we want to walk with you. you don't just want to, we don't just want to pray with you one time and then keep some statistic of how many people came and prayed with us. No, one of the things I love about this church is we love, with one, we love one another, we love God, and we covenant with one another to bear one another's burdens. We want to walk through that with you the same way that this church did with me over five years ago as I struggled with my son and his medical issues. And then we want to see God redeem your life. We want to see God redeem your story. And as he redeems that story, we want to just shout from the rooftops about what he's done. Because he is better. and Because he is worthy. Let's worship him. You bow your head and pray with me. God, I love your word. One of the reasons why I love it so much is that you do not shy away from telling us the truth and reality of our lives. That we will face suffering. That we will face pain and trial then you also promise to us that you suffered in our place and that if we surrender and trust in you the way that Ruth and Naomi trusted in you, that you will redeem us. Romans 8.1 says, For there is no condemnation nation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus, thank you for suffering in our place. Thank you that we can suffer in this life and look to a greater hope. Know that it is not in vain. Know that you can relate with us. You mourn with us. You give us a church family to walk through that with us and that you will redeem us. Where will you make us like the centurion? And when he meets Jesus and asks him to heal his daughter, he says, Lord, I believe you can do it. Help my unbelief. But will you make us a people who believe that you can redeem anyone or anything.
And we cry out to you, Lord, to help our unbelief. Jesus, we love you. And I ask this all in your good and gracious name. Amen.